0: We're in our message series on the book of Genesis. We're journeying our way through every verse and chapter of this fascinating book of beginnings. And last week we encountered the first recorded murder as Adam and Eve's son Cain murdered his brother Abel. And there was a lot for us to learn there about the dangers of letting anger fester in our lives and control us. This week we're going to discuss what I consider to be the first wedding ceremony in history. And we're also gonna look at one of the most astounding hidden codes in the Bible. And so with that tease out there, let's jump right into verse one of chapter five. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam, the family line of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him underline in the likeness of God, in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Now the actual translation of verse two is important because it's a little bit different and the King James Version actually gets it right. I put it on your outlines. It reads like this, male and female he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam. Adam, underline that word Adam in the day when they were created. The point being that Adam was a single identity. It was a term that God gave, not just to the man, but to both of them. When God referred to Adam and Eve collectively, he referred to them as Adam. It was the verbal expression of the concept of two becoming one. So Adam was Adam before Eve was created. After Eve was created, God considered Eve to be part of Adam. They had a shared identity in the Lord's eyes. This is the origin of the practice where a wife takes her husband's last name upon marriage. They simply didn't have last names all the way back then because they weren't necessary in any way. This verse is a flashback to earlier in the garden when God created Adam and Eve, and I believe that this should be considered the first wedding ceremony, with the Lord himself presiding over the proceedings and declaring the two to be one. When God gave them that shared name and he said, you together are Adam, that was God declaring their union in marriage. Keep in mind as well that Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding in Cana when he turned water into wine for the sole purpose of blessing those wedding festivities. And when you consider that, and you consider what it says here in Genesis 5, I believe we have to conclude that the Lord values, approves of and even invented the wedding ceremony, that singular specific moment in time when the relationship and the couple are defined as a married couple. They were two people, now after that moment they're one and everybody knows the moment that their new identity was made official and was codified. So write this down, fill it in. God declared Adam and Eve to be one with a shared identity. He declared them to be one with a shared identity. And the Lord knew that we needed to have that marriage ceremony. He knew that we needed an inarguable point in time when we officially committed to our spouse because the Lord knew that our tendency would otherwise be to look for an escape route whenever things got difficult. The Lord knew that in our sinful self-deception, we would be quick to blame any marital unhappiness entirely on our spouse. And I just wanna say this, never forget that the issues you have personally will follow you from marriage to marriage if you choose to take that route. But I don't have any issues, Jeff. That's adorable, that is adorable that you think that. It's amazing how we can buy into that deception. It's amazing how we can listen to Satan over and over again, simply because he tells us what we wanna hear. We reach the point where we become convinced that the true key to happiness, the true key to peace, joy, and purpose, is not Jesus, but a different spouse. And I encounter this belief far too often, even among good, good people who love the Lord. Hear me on this. Your issues will follow you from marriage to marriage. Your unhappiness will follow you from marriage to marriage. That's why it's better to stay in the marriage that you're in right now and learn to find all of those things in the Lord, because they're not going to be found in another person. And as always, please know, please know, I understand there are situations where divorce is warranted. I understand situations like abuse and abandonment, and the Bible agrees with those things. The apostle Paul mentions them specifically in a couple of ways I'm not gonna get into right now. What I wanna remind us of today, though, is that the only reason for divorce that Jesus mentioned when he was on the earth was adultery, was adultery. You see, just as God created sex to have the supernatural ability to bring a couple together as one. Adultery has the same supernatural ability to tear a couple apart. Sex has the power to bless your marriage or to rip it Apart, And I share that because we live in a culture that does everything it can to play down the importance and value of sex. And please understand this. As Christians, it is not that we don't think sex is important. The Christian view is that sex is far more important than our culture believes it is. Our culture doesn't believe sex is important. It places almost no value on it at all, and the biblical view is very, very different. And if we're not careful, that attitude can creep into the church where it takes on this attitude with regards to adultery. Well, what if I repent? Won't the Lord forgive me and restore my marriage? There's grace, Jeff. With the Lord, absolutely, absolutely. With the Lord, all sin is equally awful and was all paid for by the death of Jesus on the cross. Not only will the Lord forgive your sin, incredibly the Lord will forget your sin. But hear me on this. God's forgiveness does not free us from the natural consequences of our sin. And when it comes to sin, not all consequences are equal. All sins do not cause the same repercussions and the same consequences. When it comes to those who might sin, already expecting God's grace to make it all better. So they sin, saying, it's no big deal. I'm just gonna do it and then God will forgive me, it'll be fine. This is what the Apostle Paul said about that. It's on your outlines from Galatians 6. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. In other words, don't think you're gonna take advantage of the grace of God and abuse it and get off scot-free. Yes, he will forgive you, but you'll still reap the natural consequences of your sin. There's still gonna be consequences. And when Jesus cited adultery as the valid reason for divorce, Jesus was acknowledging that the damage caused by sexual unfaithfulness can be so catastrophic, it can be irreparable, impossible for a marriage to recover from. You know, if I pull out a gun, and I shoot my wife in the head. I can drop the gun and then cry out, oh no, what have I done? I can fall to my knees in regret and repentance. I can call out to the Lord and say, I made an impulsive and a bad decision. I had a bad day. I was hungry. I hadn't eaten in a while. I can, I can go to counseling. I can confess to the authorities what I've done and none of that will bring my wife back from the dead. But God can raise the dead, you say. Yes, he can, but it doesn't happen very often. God can heal a marriage that has been broken by adultery, but it doesn't happen very often. And if that's your story and God has healed your marriage, you have been blessed by the grace of God in an incredible way. But just as you would be unbelievably foolish to shoot your spouse in the head because you're betting on God performing a bodily resurrection, you would be unbelievably foolish to commit adultery because you're betting on the grace of God performing a marital resurrection. Okay then, then we'll just get a divorce and move on. But you won't move on. You won't move on, that's the problem. As we said, you'll still be the same person who cheated on your spouse, and you'll take those same issues into your next marriage as well. If I'm scaring you, then that's kind of what I'm going for, so that's okay. You know, one of Satan's oldest strategies is convincing us that the grass is greener on the other side, which, number one, is why it's so important to not spend your time taking note of how green the grass is on the other side. There's just no reason to check that out. It's also been well said, though, that the grass is actually greener wherever it's watered, and that's very true. If you want a better marriage, work on your marriage. But let me also say this. The grass is also greener where dead bodies are buried or where a septic tank is overflowing. There's a lot of reasons why grass can look greener, and not all of them are good. You might find there's some bodies in that yard that you didn't know were there, You know, there's a reason why alcohol commercials show people dancing and having a great time and not hunched over the toilet vomiting. There's a reason why Satan tempts us with the pleasures of sin. It's because if he showed us the natural consequences of sin, none of us would do it. None of us would do it. If we could think ahead to what the consequences are going to be, we wouldn't sin. And that's why I'm begging you, to always, and especially in your marriage, simply think ahead. Think ahead. Nothing is worth the loss of your family. Nothing's worth the loss of your family. Nothing is worth watching your sins show up in the lives of your children and their families and wreak havoc and devastation in a whole nother generation. Nothing is worth reaching your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, and then being alone. Because you threw away what God gave you. Nothing nothing is worth that. God made Adam and Eve one. And if you're married, he's done the same for you and your spouse. You are one in the eyes of God. One in the eyes of God. And now we're going to get into the genealogy of Adam, his family line. From Adam all the way up to Noah, the only family that would survive the great flood, which we're going to study next week in Genesis 6. And you're going to notice some incredible lifespans mentioned in this genealogy. And you need to know that we do consider these numbers to be literal, as incredible as that may seem at first. And now there's a whole study we can do on the reasons for that, but we're not going to do that. What I'm going to say is that the most likely reason for the change in ages between then and the time we have now is simply genetics, the corruption of the human genome. As disease and decay began to enter human genetics after the fall of man when Adam and Eve sinned, that progressed very quickly and began to impact lifespans within only a handful of generations really when you actually study the Bible and break it down. So if you want to get more into that, I'd check out the website Answers in Genesis. They have some good information about that, but the best explanation is simply it's the corruption of the human genome. Also in this genealogy, we're gonna find the most extraordinary thing. There is a hidden code in the meanings of the names in this genealogy. In other words, when we put the meanings of these names, one after another, in the exact same order in which they appear here in Genesis five, there's gonna be a message that's going to appear. And the incredible thing is it will only work if you do it in the exact order in which it's recorded here in the Bible. In Proverbs 25, it's on your outlines, it says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. In other words, there are things that the Lord has concealed. He has hidden in his word so that they can only be discovered by those who are willing to search for them. There are treasures in the word of God that will only be discovered by those who care enough to look for them. And God did it that way by design. So let's dive into it. Verse three, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness. So that just means after 130 years, Adam had a son. And then underline in his own likeness. After his image and named him Seth, named him Seth. So write this down on your outlines. The word Adam means man, it means man. And as we learned last week in Genesis 4.25, the name Seth means appointed. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we're told that Adam and Eve were created in the likeness of God. We were reminded of that in the first couple of verses here in Genesis 5. But did you notice when we get to verse three what it says here? It says that the child that Adam had, Seth, was not in the likeness of God but in his own likeness and image, in the likeness and image of Adam. You see, Adam and Eve were created in the likeness of God. They were direct creations of God. They had no mother. They had no earthly father. They were what the Bible calls sons of God, bar ha- Elohim in the original Hebrew. Now, in contrast, Adam and Eve's children and every other human born after that came in the image of Adam and Eve, not a son of God, a son of God. Adam is the idea. You and I are not naturally sons of God. We're not born sons of God. We are born sons of Adam. We only become sons of God when we are born again. That's why we need to be born again. We have been made sons or daughters of God through adoption into the family of God. In John 1, on your outlines, it says this, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, and then underlined to become children of God. To become children of God. To those who believe in his name. This is huge. We are not born as children of God. Even though last year the Pope said we are all God's children, we're not all God's children. We're not born as children of God. It's a gift and a right that is given to those who place their faith in Jesus. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. We become sons of God. We become daughters of God because we are spiritually born again. Verse four, it says, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived, his whole life, were 930 years and he died. It's a good lifetime. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Write this down. Enosh means mortal, mortal as in mortal man. Enosh means mortal. With Adam, all I'm going to say is this, the the tragedy of Adam living 930 years, in my opinion, is I can't imagine anything more tragic than living that long, having known what the garden was like. I I couldn't even fathom that. Cain, Abel, Seth, everyone who who came after them, they were were born out of the garden, but Adam and Eve had to live their long lives knowing and understanding what they had lost. I can't, can't even fathom the sorrow that that would have brought on. Verse nine, Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. Canaan, after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Canaan means abode or dwelling or if you take the alternative translation, the alternative translation is sorrow. It can also mean that that something is fixed as in it's irreversible. Just the way that somebody might have terminal cancer, the idea is that you have a fixed sentence of some sort. That's the idea here. Either fixed or sorrow is gonna fit into the hidden message here. I'm just sharing both to be as transparent as possible with the information. Verse 12, Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel. Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalal is a compound word which means the praise of God or the God who is blessed. It's best said this way. It means the blessed God. The blessed God. Verse 15. Mahalalal lived 65 years and begot Yered. After he begot Yared, Mahalalal lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalal were 895 years and he died. The idea behind the name Yered is to descend. It literally means shall come down. A side note for you Bible students, some strange things are going to come down in Genesis chapter six. And there are those who speculate That whole thing may have begun around the time of Yered's birth, and that's why he's given that particular name. If you don't know what I'm talking about with regards to Genesis 6, you need to come back next week and find out. Verse 18, Yered lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Yered lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Yered were 962 years, and he died. The idea behind the name Enoch is to train someone. It literally means teaching, teaching. Go ahead and write that down. And in keeping with the meaning of his name, the oldest recorded prophecy that was ever spoken by a man was delivered by Enoch. And we don't know that from anything in Genesis, we actually know it from the tiny one chapter New Testament book of Jude, that little book before the book of Revelation toward the end of your Bible. In the book of Jude, we're told this, it's on your outlines, it says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, so that we're not confused who we're talking about, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now take a look at that prophecy. It's very, very interesting. Is that a prophecy about the flood? It's not. It's not about the flood. Is that a prophecy about the rapture? No, it's not. It says the Lord comes with 10,000s of his angels. No, 10,000s of his saints. Now, when is that going to take place? When is the Lord Jesus going to come back to the earth with his saints, with the church? At the second coming. At the second coming, that's right. All the way back before the flood, in Genesis chapter five, around that time period, the book of Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet who was prophesying the second coming of Jesus, which is just incredible. And so understand this too. The flood was not a surprise for anyone who was listening because prophets like Enoch had been warning people that the judgment of God was coming to the earth and they had been warning people for more than a thousand years before the flood came upon the earth. Verse 21, it says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So it would seem that around the time of the birth of what we would assume is his first son, Methuselah, something changed for Enoch. And we're told very specifically that after the birth of his son, Methuselah, he walked with God for the next 300 years. And kids can have that effect on you. They just change the way you think about God. They change the way you see God, the way you understand righteousness and sin and all these big life issues, and it had that effect on Enoch. Verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and this is incredible, and he was not, for God took him, took him. You wanna talk about a consistent spiritual life A consistent walk with the Lord? Apparently 300 years is some kind of benchmark because when Enoch hit his 300th year of walking with the Lord, the Lord took him, we're told. In Hebrews chapter 11, the famous hall of faith chapter of the Bible, we're told this about Enoch. It should be on your outlines. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that, and then underline this, he pleased God. He pleased God. In other words, God took Enoch from the earth straight up to heaven, bypassing physical death in the process. To put it another way, Enoch was the first man to be raptured. He's the first man to be raptured. He was taken from the earth straight to heaven. His physical body was taken with him and he bypassed his physical earthly death entirely. Apparently Enoch was such a blessing to the Lord that the Lord simply decided to take him up to heaven early in what can only be described as the ultimate early graduation. We know so little about the life of Enoch. Only a few verses, Hebrews, Jude, Genesis, a few places. and yet. I cannot think of a greater statement that anyone could make about the life of a man than he had this testimony. This is what his life was all about. He pleased God. He pleased God. That's our primary goal in life, to bless the Lord by knowing him, by enjoying him, and then as a natural byproduct, obeying and serving him. And the good news is that incredibly, we have the ability to be a blessing to the Lord. We have the ability to please the Lord because Jesus takes care of all the things in our life that do not please the Lord. The good news is also that when we live with that goal, we too are potential rapture candidates, which is a pretty good deal. Make a note of this and we'll unpack it. Enoch is a type of the end times believer. He's a type of the end times believer. We've talked about this concept before of types. We have stereotypes, we have archetypes, we have prototypes. It's a model essentially is the idea. So Enoch is a model of the end times believer. We would say the end times is the time period we're living in close to the rapture, close to the return of Jesus, all the events in the book of Revelation. And Enoch is a model of the end times believer in that God told Enoch that he the Lord would soon be judging the earth. Enoch believed the Lord and told other people they should believe the Lord too. But before, before the Lord poured out his judgment on the earth, before the flood came, what happened to Enoch? He's raptured. He's removed from the earth. Just as the church, believers will be raptured to be with the Lord before God pours out his judgment on the earth during the tribulation. Now you may be wondering, well then what is Noah and his family a type of? What's the deal with them? Great question, now let's think about this. Noah and his family are not removed from the earth as God pours out his judgment upon it. But they are supernaturally preserved and protected by the Lord through that time of judgment, right? Now, who does that sound like in the end times? That's exactly what is going to happen to the Jewish people, according to the Bible. The church will be raptured before the tribulation, but the Jewish people will be left on the earth as the Lord uses the tribulation to break their stubbornness and turn their hearts back to him. And the Lord will, we are told, supernaturally preserve a remnant, a group of the Jews through the tribulation, just as he preserved Noah and his family in the ark. So make a note of this. Noah and his family are a type of the Jewish people in the end times. Noah and his family are a type of the Jewish people in the end times. Just as when we went through the book of Daniel, you recall that Daniel is a type of the end times believer and he is nowhere to be found when the judgment comes that causes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be thrown into the fire. We learned about how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were a type of the Jewish people who again are preserved through the trial and the fire. The model shows up all over the Old Testament. And in fact, if you've been through our Revelation study, then you know that the type will probably be even more literal with the city of Petra in Jordan serving as the possible ark of the Jewish people during the tribulation. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to our revelation study. All the cool kids are doing it. You don't want to be left out. Methuselah is another compound word which means his death shall bring. And yes, I really looked this up. I really went into the Hebrew. I double-checked everything, and it really does mean that. His death shall bring. And you might be thinking, That's a weird name for a kid. What was going on back then? It is my personal belief that the Lord shared a prophetic word with Enoch and told him that as long as his son was alive, the judgment of God, which would be the flood, would be withheld. And I believe that's why Enoch named Methuselah his death shall bring. That's what his name means. Because that's exactly how things would play out. When you run out the numbers and the ages that are listed here in Genesis 5, you can go home on your own and do that if you want to, you will discover that the very year the rain fell for the flood that sent Noah and his family into the ark was the very same year that Methuselah had died earlier. And so the idea behind his death shall bring is that the judgment of God will quickly follow the death of this Methuselah. So can you imagine the tension every time he got a cold <laughs> as a kid, is, this it? is the world about to end? We know that God never changes. He was gracious and patient back then. This is one of the great misconceptions about the Bible that God was somehow cranky and more judgy back in the Old Testament. He's the same God. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was gracious and patient then just as he is now. That's why with regards to the rapture taking place in our future, Peter wrote this. I think it's on your outlines. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the reason the rapture hasn't happened yet. God is holding off as long as possible because he wants people to repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to miss out on being part of his family and spending eternity with him in heaven. Methuselah's life was a prophecy of the mercy and patience of God because God tied his coming judgment to the length of the life of that one man. And so what happened? God made sure that that one man lived longer than any other ever has in the history of the world. 969 years, as we shall read in verse 27. The point is this. God is gracious and he's merciful. He is willing to patiently wait for people to repent, but he won't wait forever. He won't wait forever. There is a limited time. There is a day that will come when time will run out. There was a day when the rain finally began to fall and the flood came upon the earth. Just as there will be a day when the church really is raptured and the flood of the tribulation period will begin to pour out. One more interesting point God's judgment in the form of the flood was connected to Methuselah's death. Once Methuselah died, judgment was coming. God's judgment in the form of the tribulation is connected in scriptural prophecy to the generation that saw Israel become a nation again, which happened in 1948. Jesus said that the last Jew who saw that event happen will not die before the church is taken in the rapture and all the events in the book of Revelation unfold and take place. There's a connection there and a parallel there as well. So write this down. Methuselah's lifespan testifies that God is merciful and patient, but will not delay his judgment of sin forever. God will not delay his judgment of sin forever. He's merciful, he's patient, above and beyond anything we could expect, but he won't delay his judgment of sin forever. Verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lemech. After he begot Lemech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech actually has its roots in the word lamentation, lamentation, which means the despairing. You can write that down, the despairing. This is a different Lamech from the one we encountered back in Genesis 4 last week. Is it a little bit different twist on his name. It means the despairing. Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters, so he died young. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The name Noah means rest or comfort. So what happens when you put the meanings of all those names together in the exact order in which they appear in Genesis 5? Let's read through it. This is what comes through. Man appointed mortal sorrow. So man was appointed mortal sorrow. Or you can read it as man was appointed mortal and that is fixed. His condition is fixed. The blessed God shall come down teaching... His death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. And that's all right there in Genesis 5, in the meanings of the name. It's the gospel. It's the very message of the gospel that man is mortal. There's nothing you can do about that. You're going to die one day. Death is coming for all of us. But the good news is that the blessed God shall come down and did in the form of Jesus Christ Teaching the message that his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. You and I, comfort and rest. And that is astounding because Genesis is in the first part of the Torah. The part of the Bible that the Jews believe as well. And we currently have in our possession Greek copies of the Old Testament from more than 150 years before Jesus was even born. And so if you want to claim that this is somehow faked or or snuck in there, I find it very hard to believe that a group of Jewish rabbis got together and conspired to hide the Christian gospel in chapter five of the Torah. That just doesn't seem all that likely to me. You know, as Christians, we believe that in its original form, the Bible is the word of God, not an approximation Not a rough concept, but the words and letters that God wanted to give to man that he wanted recorded exactly as he wanted them recorded. The gospel being hidden in the meanings of names in Genesis 5 is extraordinary. But there's evidence of the Bible's supernatural authorship all over its pages. The consistency of the message across 66 books, 40 different authors across thousands of years. It's unbelievable how there are no contradictions, how it agrees with itself, how it cross-references itself. And I'm gonna give you one more example of the supernatural authorship of the Bible. The Torah is the name given to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As I mentioned earlier, the Torah is the core of the Jewish faith. If you take a look at the book of Genesis in its original Hebrew form, again, we have copies of this dating back 21, 2200 years. If you look at it in its original Hebrew form and you know what to look for, you will discover an incredible pattern. If you start with the very first T, the first letter T that appears, and count forward 50 letters, and then 50 letters again, and then 50 letters again, you will find the word Torah spelled over and over again, nonstop, every 50 letters from the beginning of the book of Genesis to the end of the book of Genesis. Now you try to write a cohesive story, taking a word like that and keeping an identical letter sequence like that and you try to write a book and a story as complex as Genesis, as long as Genesis, and see if you can do it, you'll realize immediately how impossible it is to do that. Here's the incredible thing. Even though that would be impossible to do back then, it would be impossible for you to do that without computer help today, and almost impossible even with computer help today. But even more crazily, you go to the next book. You go to the book of Exodus and you find the first letter T, and you count forward 50 letters, and you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, and guess what word appears over and over and over again? The word Torah from the very beginning of the book of Exodus all the way to the end. No exceptions, no skips. Now, you go to the last two books of the Torah, books four and five, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you get the exact same thing except something very interesting happens. The word Torah is spelled backwards now, backwards in Numbers and Deuteronomy. But again, every 50 letters beginning to the end of the book. First two books, Torah spelled going forwards. Back two books, Torah spelled going backwards, both pointing towards the middle book of the Torah, Leviticus. So, you take a look in the book of Leviticus, and there's something hidden in there as well. Except it's not the word Torah. You have to go and find the very first letter Y. Count forward 50 letters. And the word that appears over and over and over again, beginning to end without exception throughout the entire book of Leviticus is the word Yahweh, the name of God. So you have Genesis and Exodus spelling the word Torah, pointing forward. You have uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Torah spelled backwards, all pointing towards the book of Leviticus in the middle, and in the middle is the name of God, Yahweh, beginning to end. The message being simple and clear that the Torah and all the scriptures point to Yahweh. They point to the Lord God. They weren't written to show us how to live a good life or be better people. The scriptures were written to point us to Jesus, to point us to God. And again, the odds that anyone with human intelligence could accomplish that feat with that code thousands of years ago, there are no odds. It's completely impossible, completely impossible. And you can go check it out for yourself. To pull that off today, in literature as lofty as the Torah, you couldn't do it, as I said, without incredibly advanced computer assistance. And even with it, you would find yourself hamstrung because you would have to use certain letters in certain places. It'd be profoundly difficult And so I share all that to get to this question. What do you think the word of God is? What do you think the Bible is? Do you think it's just a nice book? Or do you think it's the word of God? Are you convinced that every word and every letter is there by the design of God? Because it is. Are you convinced that every instruction for living that's in the Bible was placed there by God for our benefit? Because they are. And if we're convinced of this, truly, then we'll build our lives on the word of God and what it says. If we're convinced of this, we will consider the Bible's promises about our future to be as certain as the events of history. If we're convinced of this, we will find unshakable hope in the promises of God. Are you convinced that this is the word of God? Because the evidence says you should be. And when you're genuinely convinced and you understand how profound it is that this book is the God of heaven and earth who created everything speaking to you and I. These are not words or ideas. This is God speaking to you and I. That's profound. That's unbelievable. That's why we study it every week. That's why we read it every day. It's the most valuable possession we have on the earth right now. I'm gonna wrap up with this next week. We're gonna go through Genesis chapter six and I wanna ask you to read ahead and think through this question. Why did God flood the earth? Well, because people were evil. Well, if that's true, we should be looking over our shoulder all the time, right? That explanation doesn't really hold water because pretty sure there's lots of evil people right now. Lots of evil stuff going on. There's no shortage right now. There's been horrific periods throughout history since the time of the flood. So what was so bad then that God had to step in and flood the whole earth? Wipe out everyone except Noah and his family. And if God never changes, what was he dealing with then that he didn't need to deal with for thousands of years after that? So read Genesis 6 and see if you can figure out what the reason seems to be for the flooding of the earth. You know my kids my kids never worry about losing their Thompsonness ever. They don't lose a wink of sleep over it. They never worry that they're going to be excommunicated from the family. And when you give your life to Jesus, you're adopted into his family. He gives you the full rights to become one of his children. And you don't have to worry about earning it or maintaining it. You just need to enjoy it. Enjoy it. Man was appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing comfort. That's what God has done for you and I. That's what he's done for you and I. His word says it. History proves it. You can bet your life on it. You can build your life on it. So I encourage you, as you read the word of God, remember and never forget, it it is the word of God. It is the word of God, and the Lord is looking always for people who will believe him and take him at his word. He's always looking, and you will be astounded at the ways the Lord will bless those who will simply believe what he says in his word and show it by the way they live their lives. So let's be those kind of people. Let's be those kind of people. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your Son Jesus. Thank you that it was your plan from the beginning. You knew exactly what was going to happen. You know how we were going to ruin everything in the garden, mess up the perfect earth that you had given us, and you had a plan before the foundations of the earth were laid to make us into sons and daughters part of your family through adoption through Jesus Christ thank you that we're not servants in your house trying to earn our place living in fear of being kicked out the door but we're sons and daughters who've been invited into your family with the full rights of children of the living God what an incredible statement What an incredible statement. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. We are forever grateful, Lord. And may we show that gratitude by living lives that show we believe you and we believe every word that you have written in the scriptures. May we live lives that show we really believe every word that's in there. May we build our lives upon your word. May we not be shaken where you have spoken a promise of hope in your word. May we sleep and rest confident in the promises of your word, Jesus. If there is anyone here who is anxious in any way, Lord, would you comfort them with your word and give them the gift of faith to stand upon the promises of your word. Lord, may you renew strength this evening. May you renew courage. May you renew peace. May you renew joy as we stand upon the promises of your word, Jesus. We love you, God.